So this morning we are um, continuing our study in justification by faith, and so the, the topic is brought to us from the second paragraph in, in the London Baptist Confession, but I want to start off first and foremost by sort of an introduction, um, and that is to say, when we study the Bible, there is um, oftentimes words written by different human writers that seem at, on the surface to not fit together very well. If we were to take them just as they were written and, and hold them together, we would say, how does this fit? And so part of rigorous or faithful Bible study is to read not just passage by passage, but across passages, and to wrestle with how do these two things fit. And one of the classic examples of this would be justification, where Paul in Romans says, we know that we hold that man is justified by faith apart from works. And then James seems to say almost the exact opposite in his phrasing, for we know that, faith, that man is not justified by faith alone, but with works. And we say, we've got to wrestle with this. And so part of faithful Bible study is as we wrestle with these things which are difficult to understand, we must do it in a way that is consistent. That is, if we want to be inconsistent, we could look at James and we could look at Romans and we'd say, well, apparently the writers are in contradiction, and so I can pick which one I want to believe. And then we might come to a different truth in the Bible and we say, well, we think these things actually synergize, so I'm going to come up with a system to synergize them. And we find that our reading of Scripture has not been thorough or consistent. And so the importance of approaching the Bible with a, a systematic way or a, a consistent way is that we would come to it faithfully, putting ourselves under it, recognizing that God has inspired both Paul and James as he has written, and there's a reason that men of old have, have witnessed to this. Even the very book that we hold in our hands, the Bible, has bound these things together when we say the Holy Spirit truly has spoke through these men, therefore we must wrestle with it. And this really is the topic that we are going to land on today then. How do we come to look at Romans and James and bring those two things together in one consistent thought of what is justification? Is it by faith or is it by works? So, to begin with, I'd like to read those two passages. Last week we were in Romans chapter 3, and so we're going to pick up where we left off there. As you're turning, as you're turning to Romans 3, I'll remind you where we were at last week. We were discussing that justification is by faith alone, and we were talking about the grounds of justification, or at least that was a main emphasis last week, that the grounds of justification, knowing that God is a righteous God, a holy God, cannot be our own righteousness, for we know that before God's law we are sinners. Therefore, what is the grounds for God to declare us holy and righteous in his sight? And this must be Jesus Christ and his work alone. And so as Paul reasons on the grounds of justification, we're going to pick up in verse 27 of chapter 3, where he says, Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews, of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Since God is one, who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith? Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham our forefather according to the flesh? 
For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And we'll pause there, or stop, and I just want to, to observe the two, the two aspects that we're looking for here. First, we, we saw in verse 28, for we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. And he uses then in chapter 4, Abraham as an example of this, that faith of Abraham preceded the sign that God had given him of his justification. And so Paul reasons from this that justification is by faith alone. Hold your finger in Romans then. Let's turn over to James and see what James has to say. This would be James chapter 3, or 2, I'm sorry, James chapter 2. James chapter 2, and uh, we'll start in verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone has faith, it says he has faith, but does not have works? Can that faith save him? Is a brother or sister poorly clothed? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, You have faith, and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown your foolish oh do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that works was active along with his was I'm sorry, you see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works, and the scriptures and the scripture was fulfilled that it says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way was not also Rahab, the prostitute, justified by works when she received the messenger sent by them, sent out by them, I'm sorry, sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. And so when we confront a contradiction like this and we see that there is something going on here, one of the first things that we do have to ask ourselves is, are we going to place ourselves under this text? Are we going to trust that God has inspired his word and that these things, though they seem contrary at first, are actually witnessing to true things about reality, about what God has revealed for us, and that both are not only needed, but essential for Christian life? And if the answer is yes, then we ask, okay, well, how ought we to approach this? And really, one of the main keys to all of this is realizing that when authors write something, they're writing in a particular context. They're arguing something. We, We dare not pull these things out and leave them stand on their own. This is where they seem to be directly at odds with each other. But if we look to the broader context, we notice some things that are different. And so this is where I would point you to. It seems that Paul is arguing about justification in a different way than James is talking about justification. How do we see this? Well, we're already in James, so while we're there, we'll stay there. I want you to look at verse 2 of chapter 1. This sort of puts a, puts a theme or a capstone on the book of James. 
Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So James starts his book out by saying, I'm talking about the testing of faith. I'm talking about the completion of a person who has faith. And we see this same, these same words picked up over in chapter 2 of verse 22 that we just read. You see that faith was active along with his work, and faith was completed by his works. Again, he's talking about the completion of this person. So there's a sense in which James is using these. He's talking about what is the nature of saving faith? What is true saving faith like? Or you could put it another way. When, when James contrasts faith and works, what is he really doing? He's contrasting a dead faith with a living faith. He's talking about two different types of faith. One type of faith is a faith that has fruit, and another type of faith is a faith that is dead. Well, what is Paul talking about? If we were to look back at Romans and look at that context in Romans chapter 3, and we, we should be somewhat familiar with this having gone through it last week, but Paul is talking about what is the grounds of justification. That is, how are we made right with God legally before God? So when Paul contrasts faith and works, what is he doing? He's contrasting dead works with living faith. That is, faith as a means to earn righteousness versus faith, I'm sorry, works as a means to earn righteousness versus faith as that reliance upon Christ and his righteousness. So to state this a little bit, a little bit more clearly if I can, in Romans, Paul talks about a living faith versus, a, versus dead works. In James, he's talking about a living faith versus a dead faith. By contrasting different things, they're meaning different things by this justification. And so I think I can show this to you even better by taking a look at the examples that they give. So both James and Paul are looking back to Genesis and trying to show you something. And if we pay close attention to that, we'll realize that they're meaning different things. First of all, we're, we're familiar with the narrative in Genesis chapter 15, if you'll turn there with me. Paul references Genesis chapter 15 when he, talks that, when he says that Abraham was justified by faith apart from works. Genesis 15, um, I'll start in verse 4, and behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man, talking about his servant, this man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought, that's God brought him outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And he believed, that's Abraham, and he believed the Lord, and it was counted to him as righteousness. So, at least if we can just shrink the narrative down to that section for a moment, God brings him out, he shows him the stars, he says, your descendants will be as many as the stars, and Abraham believes God, and it's counted to him as righteousness. Both James and Paul quote this. But James is referencing Genesis chapter 22, the sacrifice of Isaac. Genesis chapter 2. Start in verse 15. 
And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, by myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men, and they rose and went together to Beersheba, and Abraham lived at Beersheba. So if we remember, God had tested Abraham's faith, right? God had given him a test and said, take your son, your very own son whom I gave you, and sacrifice him. And Abraham, in obedience, went and trusted God. And upon that instance, God came, comes to him and says, do not, or the angel says, withhold your hand, do not slay him, I've provided a ram. And in that moment, that's when God comes to him and he gives this promise. And he says, because you obeyed, this promise will be yours. Now we have to ask ourselves, is this the first time that Abraham has received this promise? We say, no, Abraham has already received this promise by faith. And the Bible has already declared him righteous by faith. But in this case, God seems to re-give him this promise and to re-give him a a confidence in this promise because of his faithful obedience. And this is the theme that James is picking up on. Whereas Paul would look at the transaction of righteousness given to Abraham because of his faith, James would look at the way in which God has blessed Abraham, particularly because of or in connection with his faithful obedience. And so what is James getting at here? James is getting at that the type of faith that Abraham had, the type of faith that was counted to him for righteousness, that was the kind of faith which when God gives a promise, holds on to that promise as truly to believe it so as it is fruitful in his life, right? It is, and and we'll see this with Rahab as well. So the point is that the faith which Abraham has was not a faith which merely intellectually assented to it, but had no outworking. This was a faith that because he believed it, it, it had true impact on the way he would respond to God's word. So when God commands obedience, Abraham obeys. And God says, because you have obeyed, I want you to know this promise is sure to you. Not because you hadn't believed it until you obeyed, but because you believed it and obeyed. Rahab, in in the book of Joshua. Turn to Joshua with me. Joshua judges Ruth. Joshua chapter 2, starting in verse 8. So Joshua and, and these men had come, and they'd hidden in the house of Rahab the prostitute. And as the king was coming for them, Rahab deceived the king and sent them away. And this is what, this is what happens, though. Listen to verse 8. Before the men lay down, that is, hid them on the roof, she came up on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land, and that the fear of you has fallen upon us, and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did in the two, what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan in Shihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. 
for the Lord your God. He is God in heaven, in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also deal kindly with me, with my father's house, and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them, and deliver our lives from death. And the men said to her, Our life for yours, even to death. If you do not tell this business of ours, then the Lord give us the land. when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. And so I ask, ask you to, to think about this in two ways. Why is it that the spies granted Rahab this blessing of being with them? Well, surely it was because she hid them, because she demonstrated to them her kindness in one hand. But I ask you, why did, why did Rahab hide them? Because she knew of the God that had worked mightily in their midst, because she had faith in their God. And so we see, working in Rahab, the kind of faith which reaches and grasps, or is rather held onto by God's promise. God's promise, or God's blessing, is what she would want more than anything else. She is willing to lie to the king and to do whatever is necessary that she would be blessed by the God of Abraham. And this is the kind of faith which James is speaking of. That is, are you trusting in God's promise in a way that you would see the reality of what is given to you and know it to be a sure and steadfast promise? Because if that is the kind of faith you have, it does live that out in a peculiar way. It has a particular effect. And even more than this, so we have to get wrestle with the actual term justification then that is used. James says justified by works. Paul says justified by faith. Well, what do they mean then? So, and this is where um, people have made a distinction between actual justification before God and justification that they call declarative justification. That is, a justification where you, your conscience is borne witness to before, before man and before your conscience that God's promise is to you. It's very similar to um, in, in the book of Timothy when Paul says of, of the deacons, the one who serves well gains a good standing and um, in the sight of all men. He's not saying if a deacon serves well, he gains good standing with God, but he is saying there's great confidence to be gained in being faithful to God's house. Similarly, James is talking about this kind of justification. So saving faith lays hold of or rests in the blessing to be received, thus receiving a freedom to the law of liberty. This is what James is talking about. The faith pursues a sure blessing, and it pursues this by works, not to achieve it by works, but it it is the pursuit of it which demonstrates the faith, if this is making sense. Can I pause and ask for questions? I I feel like I'm I'm circling a little bit, but I'm trying to make make this as clear as I can. Okay, seeing none, we'll, we'll just turn back to James. I just want to make sure we see this with our, with our eyes and that it's not just something I'm, I'm saying. So back in James. Okay. 
I want to read in, uh, in verse 19. This is continuing on with this context. Know this, my le- beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away filthiness and rampant wickedness, and, dece- and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. That's that reception, that resting of God's word, right? But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourself. That is, there's a, there is a deception to be had if you think, if you can truly tell to yourself, I can believe with doing without responding. I can assent intellectually without it actually impacting the way my actions bear that out. He says there's a deception there. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. And we must reckon with Paul. When James talks about working here, he's talking about working unto a law of liberty. He's not talking about a, a, a working that is unto a law of, of the flesh, that is a law to, that transactionally gives me righteousness. Do this, I get this. The law of liberty we might call even, even the law in Christ. That is, when God truly comes and redeems us from under the law, we understand that the law is good and holy and perfect. And because of our love for Christ, our love for the law is not weakened, but much more strengthened. We love it because Christ has borne it. And so not only were we created in the image of God, we were in a sense twice created, recreated in the image of Christ, who is the perfect law keeper. And so as we look at this law and we love it, we realize the freedom that we have in that law is a freedom to, a freedom to love it. If it was not for Christ, there was no freedom to the law because the law comes and condemns us. We look at that law and we say, I must do it, but I, all it does is condemn me. It stands against me. But in Christ, we say, that law is the very thing which Christ came to fulfill. And I love Christ, and it does not condemn me because I'm in Christ. Therefore, I am free to do the law. So when, Paul, when James talks about the works, he's talking about works that are attached to the law of liberty, not the law of flesh. But we know that Paul is talking about works of the law, that is, works of the flesh, works to achieve. And so I think, I, I hope that we can see that truly in the context of these two things, the way in which they use these terms, justification, is different. So, with all that in mind, then, I would read to you from the 1689 London Baptist Confession, paragraph 2, the way in which Baptists of old have articulated this conclusion. And they put it in a succinct form, and I trust you'll see this resemblance borne out. It says, faith, talking about the faith of justification, that, that faith which connects us to Christ's righteousness and by which we are truly righteous to God, thus receiving and resting on Christ and his righteousness is the alone instrument of justification, yet is not alone in the person justified, but is ever accompanied with all other saving graces and is no dead faith, but works by love. And thus we have the old, the old adage, justification is by faith alone, but the faith that justifies is not alone. That faith is always accompanied by works of love. And it's, as it says, with all other saving graces is no dead faith, but works by love. And so 
Here we are not only encouraged on, but even warned to, to realize that there is a deception to believe that the kind of faith which justifies is a kind of faith which I can look at and say, I merely intellectually assent to it, and I do nothing. That's the kind of faith demons believe. They understand that Christ actually did die. But to the ones whom Christ has truly redeemed, we hold on to his promise, or his promise holds on to us, if you will. And it truly is that grace in our life by which we are able to respond to that law of liberty. And so this type of faith is not alone. It is accompanied by all the graces of salvation. Any questions about that? We've got time for questions. Yes, Ryan. What you're saying there about not intellectually, it's almost, maybe Paul says, similar the same things when he goes on. Like, shall we continue in sin? How could we who have died this sin? He just doesn't use the justification, but in a way, right. he too attacks that Romans too, which is that. Absolutely, right. And his approach, his, his wording is different, but we understand it's the, same, it's the same truth, right? Can we who have been justified in that way live to sin? By no means, by no means. We understand that we have been justified in Christ from under that very law, and therefore we do not abolish the law, but much more we uphold it. All right, well, I'll pray for us. Lord, I thank you that we can gather together in your name. Lord, we thank you that we have been justified freely by your grace and that your instrument of that justification is the faith which you have given to us in Christ. And Lord, we praise you that this faith is no sterile faith, but the faith that truly worketh in love. Lord, we love you. We love your law. We love the grace that you have given to us. And we love that the law does not condemn us. And so, Lord, we truly do, because you have first loved us, we love you, and we rest on that promise which you have given to us of eternal life. And it is that promise that we strain for and work for in our lives, knowing it is a sure thing, not by our own merits, but by Christ's. We thank you for your word. We thank you that it presses us to study deeply and thoroughly, and yet it confounds us, Lord, at many times. We thank you for that, knowing that you are an infinite God. We praise your name. Amen.